0: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor Podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Niebuhr.
1: Welcome back to the Love Thy Neighbor Podcast. I'm Cliff Bailey. And I'm joined with co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Good afternoon, fellow Nieburians. How's it going? Good afternoon.
0: Well, it's morning here, Cliff.
1: <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, yeah. We should explain to our listeners that, okay, so I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio. Zach is in Onalaska, Washington. And Aaron is in London. Okay? So we are in three different time zones. It is... Uh, the afternoon where I am, it's the evening's dinner time where Aaron is, and it's still breakfast where Zach is. Sure enough. I guess from now on, I need to say good morning, Zach. Good evening, Aaron. (laughs) Yeah, and then you guys would tell me good afternoon. Good afternoon, Cliff. Thank you. So we have uh, plans of very soon getting into specific works written by Niebuhr, but we thought we would enter the Niebuhrian realm through a little side door at first for our listeners. Niebuhr is so much more than just war and gotcha debates about uh, pacifism and, and with pacifists for many. Um, and for many, this has been their entry into Niebuhr's thought, so we, want to, uh, so we want to kind of acknowledge that, that this is an entryway into Niebuhr's thought, um, but he can t- tend to be kind of typecast as just the theologian that is for war or something like that, and that is a misunderstanding of Niebuhr. But uh, after much haggling over kind of the direction of this podcast, and, and given the times, the Russian invasion is still very much underway... Um, and many people are still wrestling with the concept of war and how it fits within their personal convictions. In light of all this, we decided to stay right here for the next couple of weeks and do a deep dive into Niebuhr's thought regarding um, war and peace and pacifism. Uh, But we do promise uh, to get out of this and, and to hone in more on Niebuhr's own works. We have one more guest next week who we will be discussing the issue with, but today we will turn our attention to a speech by Barack Obama given on December 17th, 2009. Zach had mentioned in previous episodes that uh, that was part of his way into uh, learning about Reinhold Niebuhr, uh, learning more about him was reading an article about Barack Obama's favorite philosopher, favorite theologian, um, Reinhold Niebuhr. And he even said this uh, in an interview with David Brooks. But as we turn today and look at this speech. This was a speech that was highly praised by many on the left and the right. If I can speak personally, is maybe my favorite speech a president has given in the past three decades, at least. And it is, I think, uh, and I think my co-host would agree, a speech where the former president heavily channeled his favorite philosopher, Reinhold Niebuhr. Never mentions him once by name, but Niebuhr's fingerprints are all over this speech, and this isn't just us saying it. There are many articles still out there that, uh, that draw this connection out, uh, out explicitly. And today's episode is primarily going to be about us bringing out the Niebuhr a bit for our audience, because that's a good way that I've found people can relate to Niebuhr, is by seeing how he already exists in the language and nuances of many politicians and statesmen and, and pundits, who we hear uh, on the daily. So before I bring our co-hosts in fully, I'm going to give you, the listener, a brief background into the context and events that led up to this speech that we'll be discussing, and and then we'll open it up fully for discussion. So here's the context of Obama's speech. As a young senator in Illinois, Obama publicly came out against the Iraq war at the very beginning of the conflict giving him immediate street cred in the 2008 primaries against others in the field, not least Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Jonathan Edwards, a bunch of others, who were all in favor of the war, something that really distinguished Obama from the the field. And it's something he obviously stuck with. That was a banner he got out and waved every single chance he got. I was against the war from the beginning. And then he was elected. In no small measure, he was elected, because of that very claim. The, Ra- the Iraq War was an incredibly unpopular war in the 2008 election, so he got elected. But as he was coming into office, he was thrust into this impossible decision to make about the Afghanistan War. Now you have to understand, back in the campaign, next to his adamant opposition to the Iraq War, then-candidate Obama had a more subtle and nuanced position on Afghanistan, and it almost always took a backseat to his more fiery rhetoric on Bush and the Iraq War. So because of his position on the war that garnered all of the attention, all the headlines, the Iraq War, Obama was painted as the peace candidate. Whether this was justified or not, he was the love-not-war candidate in the eyes of the electorate, and this was by design. His opposition to the Iraq War painted a simple and clear picture of him to run on, and his perhaps more gray, subtle, nuanced positions on the war in Afghanistan fell to the wayside. But as soon as President Obama, the peace candidate, steps into office, he suddenly has to make a decision about war specifically the afghanistan war and as he quickly found out it wasn't a question whether or not the u.s needed to impose a surge on afghanistan from a strategic standpoint the u.s needed more troops this was the cons- this was the consensus among generals among the intelligence agencies everybody and it's funny because a major point of contention between o- Obama and McCain in that election was all about whether the surge in Iraq that, uh, that Bush had put into place in 2007, whether that surge in Iraq up to that point was working. And Obama argued that it was not working and the U.S. needed to leave Iraq. But in the background of all this debate, there are implications also for Afghanistan and whether a surge would work there. So suddenly, now that he's in office, he has to make that exact decision. He has to make a decision about how much to surge in Afghanistan, how many troops to send to a war zone, the peace candidate. So not only did he have to kind of sideline the peaceful talking points that got him into office and admit that a surge was necessary in Afghanistan to combat this insurgency, he now had to decide... Not whether to send more troops into the middle, into the Middle East, but how many? I believe the debate at the time was something like seven thousand troops or forty thousand troops. How many troops is Obama going to send? Seven thousand or forty thousand? And lo and behold, in the middle of this decision that was all over the news at the time, what is Obama going to do? In the middle of this decision, at the worst possible time, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So imagine running as the peace candidate, winning as the peace candidate, and then among the first decisions you have to make in office is about how many troops to send into a war, and then, to add insult to injury, now you are to receive a Nobel Peace Prize for being so peaceful, and oh yeah, now you got to make a speech about it. So get this. Here's a little timeline for you. It is announced on October 9th that he would be receiving, that President Obama would be receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. October 9th. He announced on December 1st, not two months later, that he's sending 30,000 additional troops into Afghanistan. And then he has to accept the Peace Prize and give a speech two weeks later. Talk about awkward. What would you say if you got a Nobel Peace Prize two weeks after sending 30,000 troops into a war zone to fight? So I have three related questions for our co-hosts today, just to get us get us rolling, get us kicked off. First, do you think he would, there was speculation about this at the time. Do you think he was given this award to kind of box him in on a specific decision about the war in Afghanistan to kind of force his hand a little bit, or at least make it very awkward? Second, what kind of decision were they wanting? And third, did he give them what they wanted in this speech?
0: I don't know. I'm not um, I'm reading a Promised Land kind of on the side here. That's Barack Obama's, the first volume of his memoir. He doesn't make much mention of, he said it was a bit of a surprise to him that he was getting the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, He found out, you know, and it was kind of like, oh, okay. It wasn't like one of those things where he got it and he was like, oh yeah, we've been expecting this. You know, this is something that's that's coming down the tube. Um, He doesn't seem to frame it in his memoir that he was boxed in. But I now that you mentioned it though, I I wonder if they were trying to box him in on but on. Uh, um, but yeah, no, that's a that's a good question. I I now that I now that you frame it, and as I was watching it last night, um, and and this morning even, I I was I th- that question kind of emerged to me. You know, is it was this a political move? Because it almost seems out of place, and I, I think Obama makes it feel like it's out of place too in his memoir. He's like, mm. but. but Why, why am I getting this? Like, you know, even in the speech, he says.
1: That was the question everybody was asking. Why is he, what is, what has he even done yet?
0: And I remember even when I was a kid, you know, I was like, what? Like Obama's getting, he just became president. What are they, what are they doing?
1: But he acknowledges Um, this at the very beginning of the speech. And he says, I'm receiving this award before I do anything. Uh, and and he goes around and kind of says all these people and I thought he was kind of implying all these people probably deserve this more than me he mentioned like humanitarians on the ground people risking their lives um, uh, in the face of totalitarian governments and he's naming all these people who probably deserved it more any any named all these greats from history who had received this this award um, and now he's he he, he basically gives them gives everybody what they are expecting to hear why me like he's he's basically open openly asking that question i'm given this you know at a very interesting point uh, in my life why now if i could just jump in and comment i think
2: um to kind of add to what you guys are saying i have in mind three points so if obama if the award is in some way to pressure obama towards peace it is quite ambiguous as to what that would look like right yeah so this whole speech that obama does give it could be like what zach is saying right he kind of receives it and is a bit like i i didn't really think i was going to get this i'm a bit conf- confused as to why i'm receiving this it's a defense almost of himself and what he might have to do that's probably why it is a bit ambiguous yeah i mean the first thing he uses is that quote from martin luther king um which um he adds a bit more layer to it where he says our actions matter and can bend history in the direction towards justice which was first used by an abolitionist um named Mm -hmm. uh theodore uh, poker i think right Um, yeah back in the 19th um, century yeah yeah um the context behind that particular quotation is that Theodore actually admits that he doesn't know the content of what the universe is or what the moral universe actually looks like. Mm-hmm. But there is some sort of sense that we all have that we can move towards if we just, you know, try to attain the idea, try to fight for it, try to move towards it. Um, the second thing would be, it seemed like Obama actually provides a critique where he he adds in what FDR talks about in the second Bill of Rights, the economic Bill of Rights, where he says we need to have some sort of economic security for the citizens, not just without conflict. There has to be some sort of thing we move towards, as opposed to just trying to have a world without conflict. We have to have some sort of economic security for our citizens and our constituents, I suppose. So it seems like Obama is trying to defend himself that you know, peace is not the absence of conflict, but it is a sort of, we have to have some sort of action. We have to have some sort of retaliation to Hitler or uh, these big tyrants as he quotes in the speech. But we also have to have some sort of, think of new ways of creating um, uh, ample opportunities for ordinary folk. Mm-hmm. Because he I think he makes the point that um, without hope society isn't decay it's a really loose quote in the speech he provides but you have to have some sort of things that sustains the citizens hope uh faith in their government's love and luster for life in order to make them want to you know fight for justice or to have some sort of purpose
1: in life what one interesting um phrase that he uses a bit later on and we'll hopefully get to this later on but i i think it, it, it speaks so much about what you're getting at here. Um, so, Obama speaks of our duty to not only meet the, the demands of a just war, but also the demands of a just peace. Um, just, and I, I thought just peace is an, a really interesting phrase, and it seems to imply that there is an unjust peace, that there is a peace that, that actually uh, squelches um justice um and 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 i'm wondering what that looks like you know so you're talking about like fdr and kind of creating institutions that that maintain uh, a sense of justice even in in peacetime uh and yeah i i i just thought that was a, that was a really interesting way of putting it what do you think like um cuz it
2: it is quite an interesting thing so i remember Cornell west was on a um, question time i think uh, in in australia and he was trying to make this distinction between what well kind of back for backtrack um corner west does refer a lot to neighbor's uh thing in the irony of american history i think where he says that justice that, that is only justice soon deteriorates into something less than justice mm. that's why justice needs to be held up by something and namely love um to show that you know, even he makes this comment that even Hitler makes the trains run on time, hmm. he was really criticized for that by comparing, comparing Trump to that sort of mechanical procedure that even evil or bad people or people like Trump authoritarians can make a good economy, hmm. can make relative forms of peace for their citizens, uphold a good economy, give people good jobs and living wages and stuff like that. Um, but is that actually justice? Is that actually a good society um, yeah. to live in? If you have that sort of institution, I guess is the, is the question. So Obama seems to be very, very talking, maybe referring to this as just peace, something that is much more different. Um, maybe what he talks about, the moral arc of the universe, how it bends towards justice Yeah, you know, in that direction.
1: It reminds me of the Niebuhr quote, and I've brought it up before on here, but where he says that there are there are some things that are worse than war. And it makes me think that there is, uh, it's not difficult to imagine a society that is peaceful, but that is still tyrannical, you know? And that is, it it has all the order and instruments um, and levers to pull, to create a peaceful society that really all that it does is it maintains the forces of injustice. You know, um, that's good. Now to come back to one of your points, Aaron, about the arc of the universe uh, bending towards justice. One of my the main things that I always criticized Obama for was he always used this language of kind of the wrong side of history versus the right side of history. I still like I that that way of articulating history really bothers me. Um, I don't know if there is a right or wrong side of history. I think um, something that Niebuhr is always talking about is, is how incredibly yeah. um, interdimensional history is, and how you can t- pull uh, good things and, and evil from both the past and anticipate those things for the future as well. Yeah, um, but I think that was my
2: first impression of it as well. Whereas, yeah. well, is is he meaning that it's inevitable? Right. Like, and if, and if it's inevitable, then it means there's some sort of right way of doing it, or it's going to happen. And I think in the links I sent you guys last night, sorry for our viewers, you haven't seen them, there, there are quite a few interpretations of what that means. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, on the one hand, some think the way that Obama has used that, co opted that language, um, he, he, he first uses it from MLK. But MLK uses a particular rhetorical style, which kind of implies the, you know, that justice is um, inevitable. Whereas the the original quote does make it a bit more ambiguous that action is required, and that the sort of the type of actions you do matter.
1: But yeah, yeah. Now, I was going to say right from the very beginning of the speech though, Obama does distinguish this in a way that he never he, does. he never did on the campaign trail, where he said before he even went into this, he said. We are not slaves to our fate. Um, We Basically, he makes the argument that we have agency. We have a decision to make about which way we're gonna be taking this. But then he does kind of put it back in that historical way of viewing things. But he at least raises personhood um, into a state where we can make a right decision and we can make a wrong decision. This isn't an inevitability that we are leading ourselves toward uh, a more just future um but yeah i i uh, I, I i thought that was a, a key distinction that i yeah. maybe didn't hear the first time that i listened to this but he does make that distinction here well we did yeah go ahead sorry zach
0: oh well one of the ways i i think like one of the things we're kind of touching on here is one of these the ways that obama i think channels Niebuhr, and maybe this is also just their similar in personality this way is I noticed something because Cliff brought it up a few weeks ago during our discussions that um, one of the powers of Niebuhr is that he's a clarifier of reality and that he, he doesn't necessarily prescribe things too often, but he clarifies reality. And that actually is more persuasive. And one of the things I noticed that Obama does all throughout the speech is he does that. I noticed that, you know, because Cliff illuminated that for me, is that he takes on that style of Niebuhr and maybe not intention in that regard, but he's just clarifying he's going through and clarifying what's actually going on. And that helps like kind of clarify, like what's really happening, right? Like mm-hmm. he just brings to, brings to the forefront. Some of these, these very obvious facts that are almost easily forgotten. Like he has this line where he says uh, plain fact is that the United States of America has helped underwrite global security for more than six de- decades with the blood of our citizens and mm-hmm. the strength of our arms uh, of service
1: yeah and he says there's no really, glory in, yeah. there's no glory in war that yeah. war should not be glorified
0: yep but, but he there does say that, a, there's a it, yeah.
1: element to it no matter what yeah I, so, that's a really good point zach about how
2: Niebuhr's method of like clarification and i was just wondering like mate i want you to comment on this like what is he trying to clarify obama in this case right what is he trying to clarify like why is it so po- important for him to make these distinctions that cliff and i were kind of mentioning before is it because like if cliff is right in setting up the problem why is obama receiving this award are they trying to pin him in a corner to you know adhere to peace does the nobel peace committee think peace is inevitable or is something that is that we're all is just going to happen that seems to be like the idealist project mm. in in the West from Enlightenment, right? That peace is just, or we're moving towards a good society. We have to have a bit of mess ups along the way, but we'll get there eventually, you know. Um, but it seems like Obama's really trying to clarify his position. Maybe this has forced him to rethink a lot of his old,
1: you know, preconceptions. That's a great point. What do you think, Zach?
0: Uh, no, I, I mean, I, I think that's a really good question, Aaron. Um, and I think that um, I, I think that he is. If I was going to say, what is he clarifying here? What is the thing that he's clarifying? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's what he's really driving at, and just he's trying to uh, help people see that a just peace is what we should be striving for. And again, not to draw everything to say that everything is Niebuhr-esque, but yeah. this is very Niebuhr-esque and that he wants us to get on with to get on with the idea of pursuing justice in the world to pursue and, and, and to pursue that justice, understanding that it will require at times violent coercion, like yeah. that there, that there is a necessity that we shouldn't get so bogged down in the uh, almost bogged down in pacifism is you, you could almost throw that in there. Right. He, there's, yeah. there's this um, he's saying, let's, let's set that aside and let's strive. And I, I see that with Niebuhr. Like that's one of the things we talked about over and over again, every week as we've talked about this. His neighbor's like, we, we can't get so bogged down in the otherworldliness of kind of mm-hmm. some of the fundamentalist positions of religion and get bogged down in this idea that uh, we're just waiting for the end. We're just sitting here waiting to the end. We're not going to mess with the world. We're not going to do anything with the world or the other extreme where it's like, we're going to fix everything. We're going to fix the entire world and it's going to be this ideal place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to take yeah. the sorrow on one hand. We, we have to take the sorrow and we have to take the, the pain and the blood and we have to get dirty. And try to secure that, right? Um,
1: Right along with that, I think that what what Obama is trying to clarify and try to, he's he's basically trying to release his listeners of the illusion that by leaving Iraq, that actually leads to more peace. mm -hmm. That by actually, ironically, by staying there and doing this troop surge, um, can guarantee a potentially more uh, lasting peace um than just by uprooting and 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 leaving um he's given an but, impossible task and he's all he, he's saying the whole time that that he was very clear on the fact that war is an ever-present reality we will never get rid of evil in the war in the world and war and even if you leave the war that doesn't necessarily mean that that the war is just going to escape. And in fact, we can even, oh my gosh, like draw this very clear uh, conclusion from history is at this time, Obama's future, but Obama will leave Iraq and what will come in its place as soon as that power has left is a vacuum that needs to be filled by something else. And this is where ISIS develops that by leaving. Okay. So we go into war because we're thinking kind of what Aaron was talking about, where you can still have a peace, right? But it's an un, it's an, an unjust peace, and that's what we they had with kind of Saddam. You remove Saddam, and now there's a power vacuum that the United States has to fill. But if we leave there prematurely, something else is going to fill that vacuum. Something perhaps more evil than what you originally started with. At least under Saddam, there was an order that was kept between the the Shiites and what's the other group crap the sunnis the sunnis the sunnis and the shiites at least there's something that's maintaining that structure and keeping them from warring we go in there we have to deal with that all of a sudden and we are starting to kind of create some stability there then we leave and now isis kind of fills that that vacuum a bit so so this is kind of he's kind of being prophetic about his own folly that will come about is that uh just by leaving that doesn't mean there's going to be peace there in fact it could mean something worse um and and that's <sighs> ultimately yeah. what ended up happening i think maybe to support what you're saying cliff he says and i'm
2: not quoting the whole sentence here but he says that inaction tears our conscience and can lead to more uh more costs that uh, than, than later, I I can't yeah. actually read my last written. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry for our listeners, but um, but I think the whole point is what he's trying to guys that inaction can cost more, more bloodshed later on if you wait now. I think he used that in, in the section where he's talking about um, World War Two that inaction leads to more bloodshed later on, costs more for your for peace.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I think that he's, he's, one of the things he's clarifying is that that people want to say that there's an easy decision, right? And maybe he's being boxed in by the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, you know, just to push back, uh, to, to kind of highlight your idea here, here Aaron. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know, he, he kind of does exactly what Niebuhr does, not to always say he's always doing what Niebuhr does. or maybe it's just, again. That's the temper- podcast, man.
1: That's cool. Well, it, yeah. <laughs> well,
0: what I mean is it might be just a similar temperament or a similar humility that they share, or he might be doing exactly what Niebuhr does. And that, you know, on the other side of what you're saying, right, he criticizes inaction. And he says that inaction is, you know, it can be equally as detrimental. But then he says, you know, he quotes the, uh, I think he quotes MLK, and I think it's MLK. And he says, basically, and I'm just, I'm not going to say the quote, because I didn't write it down, but I have the paraphrase here. Violence solves no problem. It just creates new ones. You know, it's a, he's kind of box, he's clarified reality for them and said, look, uh, on the one hand, we cannot, you know, in, in his very famous, you know, voice, "On the one hand, we cannot take in action on, on the other hand, <laughs> yeah. violence doesn't solve all the problems, you know? And so it, it you know what I mean? Like he, 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 puts it, he frames on it other. on the other one hand on the other hand, and, and that's clarifying reality to- though, because people really want to have, well, which way do we go? And it's like, this is going to get messy either way.
2: But Do you actually think it clarifies it? Because the, the question I was left with, and this is probably the question that maybe we're, we have to go back to play to, maybe, is did Obama actually define what justice actually means? He, he used the language of in the direction towards justice, which is a bit ambiguous. And then he goes on to list how we can obtain and he goes i mean this is more probably more neighbor here neighbor-esque where we can obtain relative forms of justice ah. but then he goes on to move on to we have to have these institutions at play yes to sort of police
1: yeah
2: so like but even then it still begs the question what do these institutions move towards or what are they trying to move towards which is still quite ambiguous right he um, speaks
1: of the values and stuff and i think that's he, he's channeling kind of something similar to maybe what Cornel West is talking about of, of a love that's un, undergirding our justice um yeah. he didn't use that those terms but the, the, but there he said values instead
0: um I was gonna steer this a little bit different direction um I was, I was wondering where you guys had to, what he, what he what you guys thought about what he said about holy war um I guess he really tried to distinguish he, he has this line he said uh <laughs> Uh, when someone truly believes that you're carrying, when they're that they are carrying out divine will, then there is no need for restraint, no need to spare. And then he goes on and lists a bunch of people that aren't spared in a holy war. Um, and I guess I wanted to try to figure out, you know, and this is one of the things that I have a problem with with Niebuhr. Or I struggle with with Niebuhr between, um, between Niebuhr and uh, even Obama here. What is the difference between, I guess, pursuing a holy war and trying to pursue a meaningful peace? So, um, I know there's a distinction. I know there's a difference. But, uh, you know, just to give an example, you know, we just, we blew up, like, I don't remember, like, 15 kids outside of, in, in Afghanistan in retaliation for an attack that happened there while we were leaving. And, and it, it, it really I really reflected on that as, as I, was, I was kind of thinking about what Obama was saying. He was trying to distinguish what he was talking about, right? a, a just war, or more just peace, from a holy war, right? Because, you know plenty of civilians were killed under his. And I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that there wasn't greater restraint. I, I believe there was greater restraint for sure underneath an American invasion of a country versus some other, you know, some other countries' approaches. Um, you could see that playing out in Ukraine right now in Russia's indiscriminate bombing of, you know, hospitals and whole towns. Um, but what's the difference, right? In some ways, I almost see Obama's, what Obama is pursuing as there's a faith element to what he's pursuing. You know, there's a holy war to what he's pursuing. He's he is touting, justice a certain justice against uh some other form of injustice that he sees in the world you know he sees what he's but he doesn't frame it religiously you know and so i don't know what I, do you guys I think, think there's about that? i
1: think there's a universality to his understanding of justice he might like and we'd have to dive into his like what we think where we think he actually is in his religious beliefs i would guess he's probably some kind of humanist um that draws heavily from the christian well um, at least in his language and his t- uh, talking about the just war. I mean, he, he brings like the Augustinian tradition, the, the just war tradition is the Augustinian tradition. Um, but I think that this is maybe an opportunity to toot our own horn a little bit, uh, the, the Christian horn a little bit, and that it does have certain elements within it that keep even a Christian war from becoming a holy war. When we are trying to implement the Christian ethic in its entirety. What he, uh, how he would distinguish holy war from just war is a holy war is, we could say, call it Manichaean or an us versus them, tribe versus tribe, which is unchristian. That is unchristian. Jesus himself, I mean, I'm not about to impose Um, a war ethic onto jesus here that would be a little weird but i will say that christ teaches us that he is more important than our father or mother he's more important than blood he's more important than um, our politic Uh, there's a certain element to christian theology that is always trying to keep us out of an us versus them type of mentality. Um, whether or not we're totally mindful of it all the time, that's another question. But that's the holy war element that I don't see you can derive from the Christian scriptures and the Judeo-Christian wisdom. Um, but the justice that he's talking about that does draw from the scriptures, I think, and how we understand who our enemy is, who, who we under, how, and how we are to treat our enemy, Um, would lead us more to a proportional nuanced understanding of what war is not to eliminate the enemy but a way of but to strive toward a universal justice that is beneficial to all human beings Um, and that universality is at the heart of christianity it's not like um, convert or die that is not at the center of our faith at the center of our faith is love your neighbor as yourself how Mm. do we do that Um, yeah there's a certain universality there that everybody uh that applies to our neighbor and our enemy um so how do we uh create a certain peace for all individuals involved that's a very different goal than a holy war
2: right i, I think as well maybe the uh, plow off the back of you too with the meaning of war maybe within the christian lens and this is very Niebuhrian. and obama tries to talk about that no matter how justified war promises tragedy and it's i guess at the end of war or is not it's not victory that's celebrated it's more nothing celebrating no it's it's a tra- it is it's tragic yeah. and it's a more, it's a reminder of the tragic elements of, of human nature and our conditions so i mean i think this is probably where the christian element does come out that at, at on the other side of it we don't celebrate the victories we don't loot we don't these things it's just not none of that none of that it's we're reminded of how how bad the what, what we're in
1: but i find it fascinating that one of the things that obama really um hits early on is he kind of, I think that in this moment, he's kind of stepping outside of this Christian just war theory and kind of critiquing it for a moment from a humanist perspective, because he says, okay, this, these are the tenets of the just war theory. And one of those things that he mentions was minimal casualties to civilians. And he says, but then he makes an incredible point that during World War II, more civilian and he says, World War II was maybe the best, the, the most clearly justified war in our nation's history. Um, to fight against these Nazis. But still, even in that war, more civilians died than soldiers. So even if you take the most justified war in our nation's history, it still does not work in the just war theory. So he makes that critique of it kind of from the outside, maybe a humanist position or whatever, but then he slides back into it and says, but we still need these kind of guidelines to kind of direct us, even when we make impossible decisions
0: and he doesn't completely
1: abandon it but he still criticizes it
0: yeah Mm -hmm. he says uh we have to admit the intractability of deprivation and still strive for dignity clear-eyed we can understand that there will be war and still strive for peace we can do that for that is the story of human progress that's the hope of all
1: that's the hope of all
0: interesting yeah he said something more but yeah Uh,
2: you know, I think like, there's this weird perception, like, what are our intentions at any given moment? They're always fluctuating between different things. And sometimes the consequences of our, of, our, of our actions are not what we intended, and they cause greater harm. And, you know, maybe Obama's really playing on this as well, that we can have, it's so hard to have a just war when you have unjust um, participants.
1: Right. <laughs>
2: You know, <laughs> and well, we still you know, need that
1: is kind of going back to the impossible possibility. You you, you yeah. kind of still need that guide. And this is where I think um, the interpretation of Christian ethics is somewhat is, is pretty instructive. And in that he says that if if you remain in that kind of relative mode of peace, constantly peace and justice, like like, um, you know, a head of state is. And remember, he distinguishes himself from Martin Luther King, he he said, he says that I'm indebted to King, um, obviously, and then gives King's argument about violence. And then he says, but I'm a head of state. So he makes kind of that distinction and says, basically, while I'm in, in the head of state, I am forced to make these decisions in this realm of relative justice and peace. But I think that his... I almost called it a sermon, but in this, in this speech he's giving, he's almost, it's almost a cry for a prophetic voice that extends beyond the just peace as well, um, or, the, or, the, uh, or, or, or the just war type of formulation where um, even this is going to be imperfect and we still need that kind of absolute on the outside still judging us and still saying that this is still not good enough. And maybe he found that source as his human humanistic self, or you know, his uh, starry-eyed, naive, you know, idealist uh, type of persona that he ran on. Um, he still needs that uh, as a judge of what he's doing yeah. now, um, or he he is doomed to fall into the errors of relative of relative justice.
0: Yeah, but I, I think that that's one of the things that I think. If, if Obama shares with Niebuhr that I'd really appreciate the most is that, I mean, just reading his memoir, he's fully aware, fully, fully aware of all these contradictions, right? He's not trying to proceed as if he's one who has accomplished the supreme clarity to,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, he, he's not a purist. He's not going along saying that he's this pure theolo- pure uh, pol- politician who d- it hasn't learned, hasn't grown, hasn't realized that his positions are wrong. On you know, in certain circumstances, right? Um, and he's not willing to let his ideology or his um, idealism, I guess you could say, allow him to make terrible decisions, right? He didn't just come into he he didn't just come into the presidency and say, "All right, uh, we're going to shut down Guantanamo, we're going to everybody's going to leave Iraq, Afghanistan, yeah, um, all this other stuff." You know, kind of like with Niebuhr, he 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 became aware of kind of the complexities i mean it reminds me of niebuhr you know going uh encountering things right along the way especially with like world war ii and realizing oh man like i can't be a pacifist like i i can't you know this isn't going to work yeah um which is why i think obama
1: is a fascinating case study on this because i don't know if i'm uh drawn to obama necessarily because he's Niebuhrian, just because he's neighboring but because the contrast is so stark between kind of what he ran on and what he ended up becoming. And I, I, I can't help, but see a at work there. I still think that he was weak in a number of areas. I know on the issue of Syria and the red line, I I know that Biden and Samantha power or Samantha powers, I believe is her name. They're like telling him, you have to enforce this red line. Um, You have to intervene. Uh, and I think it's like Ben Rhodes and he, he's got another slew of people on the other side and he ends up kind of taking the weaker position. I, I almost wish that he would have listened to the stronger positions sometimes, but that's, but that, that is, that's a knee type of problem where you split hairs and split hairs and split hairs. And you're, you're running the dialectic, you're running this thing through and you ultimately have to make a decision. Will it be a courageous one or not? Um, that's, that's where Niebuhr kind of leaves all of us. And we're, we're constantly ending a lot of our discussions in that place. Okay. We've kind of ran this through the gamut, you know, what now, what do we do now? You know, what's the next step? What is the courageous step now that we know the complexities?
0: I think one of the things I really appreciate about just this, uh, this speech by, by Obama, is that it captures a lot of what we're trying to do kind of on this podcast. Um, we're trying to say, like, look, like Niebuhr's views have shaped, you know, politics. They've shaped foreign policy. Look how he's influenced even just American life, right? Yeah. And I think a lot of people would have looked at this and not thought, you know, and, Niebuhr, and, and Obama says, like, in his memoir, A Promised Land, he says, like, he, he drew on Gandhi and Niebuhr. That's, mm-hmm. that's who he drew on. I think he also what drew on MLK. Interest. Yeah, yeah he, he drew on MLK too, obviously, because he quotes MLK quite a few times, I think twice, two or three times in the speech. Um, but, you know, it's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to say, look, um, this is, you may not know it, but, you know, he's he's in the minds of some pretty prominent leaders, you know. Probably one of the most popular presidents in the last, last while here. Um, so maybe if, maybe we
2: can maybe draw this out because this is a really good point that Zach brings up that maybe to ask both of you, this question, why do you think, because we're here, we're, we've sat here and talked a lot about points and where Niebuhr comes to light in this sort of speech that election Obama gives. Why is Niebuhr such a linchpin or a cornerstone for Obama in making in writing this speech while he's making these decisions?
0: I think probably defiance. I think that there's a real, like, I think he maybe feels somewhat uh, pressured. And again, I didn't realize that until uh, Cliff really highlighted it because I was just a kid when this all came out. Um, But I think that some of it's defiance. He needs to draw upon somebody to help him. I mean, I'm I'm mind reading Obama here, but um, he needs to draw upon somebody that can help him defy this, this group of people that want to push him into this box of like, this is what peace looks like. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Like true peace requires violent coercion. We can't have this the without these true. two. Yeah. Without, without these two together and don't, you know, don't slip into this weird, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I idealism where you're so, you know, you're so constrained to this world where like, I mean, I think we're seeing kind of some of the downside right now, right now to this kind of idealism towards pacifism in uh, Europe, they're scrambling to buy all these expensive American mm-hmm. weapons all of a sudden. And it's like, if you guys just had taken more of an Obama approach, I mean, not not to just toot Obama's horn, but if you would just kind of listened to what he said in the speech, you know what I mean? I think you probably, you know, I think it probably would have been better for your foreign policy. You wouldn't be scrambling right now to, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have been a naive about. The fact that the, you know in order to maintain the peace you're going to have to use violent coercion especially as a head of state
1: yeah and we mentioned i think a couple of weeks ago that ukraine giving up their nukes you know i mean that's another example of just kind of like if if we give up our nukes okay we're safe now the irony is the opposite
0: yeah that's and cool. i and i think and i think uh-huh. the other thing i would yeah. add is he highlights here he says um peace requires responsibility peace entails sacrifice and it's so weird to me how people just like don't associate either of those things with peace. They think that peace is based on like tolerance and kindness or something of that nature, and you know, inaction. yeah, and in inaction, Neutrality. right? Just doing nothing. But yeah. he's saying, no, no, we have to take a responsible view to the whole entire world. He says, we're responsible to instill peace. I mean, in some ways, responsible for the peace of the world um, together, right? He's trying to bring everybody together, but those words actually carry a weight. Uh, uh, accountability sacrifice that what he's saying is like you're going to have to give up your lives so that there's peace in Somalia so that there's peace here so that there's peace Mm -hmm. here Um, in in these different places you're going to have to make sacrifices and and take action and it's like I almost like I wonder if people are hearing this and it's just like just like flying over their heads you know what I mean
1: well I think that what drove Niebuhr um, into a more maybe Hobbesian or Burkean view later on in life, this kind of belief in institutions and government, um, the government, the kind of the status quo as is um, a little bit. And it's uh, a major source of contention among uh, many Niebuhr readers is I think that what ultimately drove him is what he started with. And that is the sinfulness of human nature. What is at the heart of, of, of the human being if you run that through, if you believe that we are sinful, left to our own devices, what kind of world do you have? There has to be some kind of high, like higher institution that we put into power um, that is going to be by its very nature coercive. And you can see kind of the seeds of this in Moral Man and Moral Society, one of his earliest works.
2: Yeah, I can there see. There is that. this sense as well. Obviously, think with, with if if the Hobbesian sort of direction of Niebuhr and maybe maybe Obama by virtue of his of Niebuhr's influence is to the belief of institutions, um, you know, Obama does make this distinction about between that we don't need to have a, a big distinction between realism and idealism, which might be a bit different from Niebuhr here actually, might be some way well, he gets out of being a Niebuhr here, that's more what you guys' uh, opinions on this. Where he talks, where he says, we don't, we do not have to live in an idealized world to still reach for those ideals that will make it the world a better place. The practice, the nonviolent practice of by men like Gandhi and King may not have been practical or possible in every circumstance, but the love they have re- preached, um, their fundamental faith in human progress, that must always be the north star that guides us on our journey. For if we lose that faith, if we dismiss it as silly or naive, if we divorce it from the decisions that we make on decisions of war and peace, then we lose what's best about humanity, we lose our sense of possibility, we lose our moral compass. So he's using here our, our idealisms as our compass, and Niebuhr, in, in quoting from the, the paper he gave, uh, why the Christian church is passive is not a pacifist, he does say that we need our absolutists. Um, in our in our discussions, to keep us grounded and, and not to you know give in to war uh, or give in to idolizing war in a weird way. So uh, maybe I have two questions for you guys. Do you think this is where maybe neighbor moves out of Nie? Oh, sorry, Obama moves out of neighbor a bit. And what do you take on human progress? Because here, this fundamental faith in human po- progress. Mm-hmm. Is that a Niburian phrase or is it something that is, again, he, it's, it's right here where Obama, at the beginning of his acceptance speech, has done very careful to distinguish uh, the uh, king he's co-opted from king, where he says that um, our actions matter and can bend history in the direction of justice. He's careful to uh, qualify that with actions. Where King doesn't. But here he kind of looses up where many progressives and idealists kind of go towards where we have this fundamental faith in progress. What does that even mean? So and where do we go from there?
0: So I, I want to jump in here because I want to I, I really want to answer this first. Um go right ahead, Zach. I, I really think this is more practical than like uh yeah, it's more it's more, not rhetorical, but practical. I think that he... I'm going to draw a connection here and I hate to draw a sports metaphor, but Seahawks fan, longtime Seahawks fan, you know, been watching Russell Wilson play sadly, you know, RIP, <laughs> RIP Russell Wilson. Um, he, uh, but one of the things about his style of play that I think is like, is really informative to this is that he is almost like insanely. Hopeful about winning and, I think it's a huge part of, I mean, he's obviously got very talented, very talented, right? He's one of the 32 quarterbacks who made it to the NFL. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that makes him a freak when it comes to like winning games is like, I remember watching the Packers game where they beat them in the NFC championship game. And they were down like 23 to zero. And here's this guy on the sideline. You know, he's got these like wide eyes. like, We're going to win. We're coming back. We're coming back. And sure enough, that by some miracle, they came back and I watched him do it over And over and over again for like years, this kind of like weird. But I think that, like, in order, and the thing I want to draw from this is that, like, in order for those things to have become a possibility, he had to have faith that he was going to win, right? He, not to say that he was actually going to win, right? But he had to truly believe that he could win. And I think that, as dumb as it sounds and as like cliche as it sounds, I think it's really true. I think you genuinely have to believe in human progress in order to pursue it and to say, Hey, we're going to try to make the world a better place. Even though, you know, you know, I've also watched Russell Wilson lose some very tragic games, AKA coming all the way back in the super bowl and throwing the interception at the goal line. Right. And having your heart broken, but he believed the bitter end. He was probably still believing on the sideline after he threw the pick. He's probably like, we could still come back. We could still come back. You know? Um, and I think that even though it doesn't ensure, even though it doesn't 100% secure victory or whatever, just, mm-hmm. like, just like believing in human progress won't 100% secure victory, I think there's some, something about it where you have to have faith in that in order to see it happen. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I think you're right, because he does say, he does call it our moral compass. So <laughs> is, is this our beyond tragedy moment? To kind well, of call off this mm-hmm. thing from the neighbor here but is it is it because this is my my sort of issue not with this because i am a bit wrestling with this is it too idealistic
1: right well and that's this is what the I thing was, with neighbor yeah, yeah yeah that's what i was going to say is, the, is yeah. that the worst thing that happens with russell wilson if he's too optimistic about his team is he loses and yep. his heart gets broken. <laughs> the worst thing that can happen to a leader if he becomes overly optimistic about his country and about you know his own people is they they invade Poland, right? Uh, so <laughs> there, there is a danger to that optimism, but I see what Zach is saying here. It's not optimistic. Obama about. has to be kind of a coach a little bit, and maybe that's how he sees things, is yeah. you have to get people to believe in progress in order to, for them to actually do it. And I hear that, but... I'd reiterate reiterate the danger of it, and I'd also reiterate that this is kind of the humanistic element of Obama's thought. A little bit Mm -hmm. is he does have. I I believe that he actually does have a faith in humanity, or at least he he has a tension there that maybe uh, Niebuhr helps him uh, negotiate um, between. I don't think Obama would say this the sinfulness of man, but he may say like the evil. Um, of humanity uh, and, and kind of our better angels, you know? Uh, But I do see what you're saying. I I see what you're saying is that you almost have to dupe people. And this is why I said originally, because you said practically, and I said kind of rhetorically, I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I think that he has to be that coach where it's, he, it's a lot of rhetoric to, to get us to buy into this thing
0: um having read obama's uh, a lot of obama's memoir i think obama actually has a tendency towards cynicism i think in his own personal psyche you know what i mean like at least that's what i picked up you know like he's fully aware of the trappings of humanity fully aware of the ina- inadequacies of people you know what i mean uh, people letting him down people not following through people uh
1: so it really matri- does say it li- seem like lying he's to a coaching us into into something that
0: is no but maybe I, he sees yeah. as
1: impossible but it's the only way that he can get us to even take a step is no i think he, talking us into it i think it's,
0: yeah go
2: ahead i would just be a bit careful rereading the memoir into obama's saying here now yeah because this that stuff's a reflection upon the things mm. that have that's come true before. That's this point. this this thing is here now so you know uh, that's why i mean go ahead zach yeah your point now. Well, no, you know, point and,
0: out. and another thing i'm drawing on is like my my mom you know and this i'll try to do my best to make the connection but my mom did a, a it's another example of what we're talking about uh, my mom did a and i and i see it in neighbor as well my mom did her phd or doctorate on in education and she did it on specifically on the um the 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 effect of a teacher's belief in their students upon their performance and there's a very strong connection between whether or not your teacher believes that you will succeed Mm -hmm. and some of your success markers right there's also other factors nature and nurture and all the other stuff but it still has an impact right it's it's very important that a teacher believes that you will succeed that they believe in your success your ability um and I think that there's some of that faith aspect in this, right? I don't want to draw too much of the. Um, well, what but, but else see... would you call it? I think that that yeah, fighting the, yeah. I...
1: cynicism, there's still a faith there.
0: Yeah, but he's but you you have to have faith. In a, in a practical sense, you have to have faith that this that the good can come, right? That we you know that we, yeah. uh, and I and I think that it, it's almost like. Uh, with Niebuhr like he like it's almost like his idea of sublime madness like you have to step out into the fray and believe you have to believe that we can make this place a, a world a better place and I think Obama touches on the fact that like if we give in to if we just stop hoping if we just give up it, it literally rots a society from the inside out and I think that's 100% true personally yeah. I think that's that's I don't know I, I think that as soon as you have the masses don't believe in human progress as soon as we believe that you know I think it gets real messy real fast. That's just but, my own. But so, uh, the
1: moment we all yeah. assume a human progress, the moment we actually become dangerous too. So, it's yeah.
0: Well, I mean, what I mean though, is like we can not not a belief in human progress that we will succeed, but a sense of like, we have to strive for it. We have to have faith that we can make the world a better place. We're okay. not going to succeed in that. But that we nuance can.
1: is very difficult among
0: yeah. most people. Oh yeah, he, I agree.
1: He calls it, are they well? He calls these
2: leaders like on the king, our north star,
0: mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I don't and know that, about that. That's
2: quite an idealistic language, isn't it? Like, we it isn't, I, I, we're idolizing these folk to such see to see such that, a high position in our life that it's, it's not becoming well. Maybe I'm confusing the point here, so no, you know, no it's, I think you're.
0: I think your point is really wh- good, but I think it's wrong. And I think the reason it, the, 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 I, I think that probably I think Obama- you suck. Yeah, yeah, you're wrong. No, no, I think. But it's a common mistake that people make. And I think that it's especially common in like an, a people that might come out of an evangelical circle. And I think that that is that when somebody says something like, oh, Gandhi and MLK are North Star, you're like, oh, my gosh, that's idolatry right but i think what he's saying is he's well but not you but i think other people might make that mistake um i think he's holding them with a more loose a loose open and saying hey like i kind of see a direction we should that's very neighbor-esque right like the good is like kind of let's hold our arms out like this and like we're really bad at determining what right and wrong is but i know it's probably in this direction you know what i mean as opposed to like hits this narrow little fine-tuned point like gandhi and mlk are like the pinnacle of goodness no they're like somewhere in the direction of goodness it's kind of what but i th-
1: let me try to slide a piece of paper between the two of you okay because i think that i think you're both right to a degree there's a question of what obama intended and i think what he intended is exactly what what zach is talking about i think so too. i think there's a, another obama that is what is received um uh, that can be taken as an idolatry And then there's another layer of how Obama is perceiving that he's being received. And I think on that level, he has to know that this uh, language does, he has to know that this language does kind of create a sentimentality for uh, Gandhi and MLK that can complicate these types of speeches that he's giving. Um, the more that people, I think, idolize those types of figures, the more difficult the nuance of war and geopolitical relations uh, becomes. Um, so I think you're both right. I I would oh, I would say yes, Gandhi, MLK, great North stars air quote air quote North stars, tempered with the understanding that these guys have clear faults, uh, especially Gandhi. Gandhi wasn't an angel, right? Uh, He was messed up in a couple of areas, more than a couple. (laughs) Uh, But kind of what they stood for, there is a sentimentality there that can be dangerous and can blind us to what is necessary for peace and justice in the world.
0: See, I I almost wonder if he chose them. And again, I'm totally speculating. But I almost wonder if he chose them because they're somewhat ambiguous, right? I, you ask the, the the average person, what does MLK stand for? Uh, anti-racism, it's probably going you get Gandhi. I, I think the most American people- Well, there's kind of a are. folk
1: mythology around both of them.
0: Oh I yeah, and I think that, but he's appealing to their ambiguousness. You know, there's an ambiguousness to them. And it, like, there's some elements, right? That, that are very clear, right? Nonviolence, that they have some elements about them that are- very clear, you know. What I mean, like they were both nonviolent, right? They were they were uh, appealing to to nonviolence and to being temperate and trying to use policy to change things and uh, democratic values, right? There, there's kind of some of these things that are lumped in with them. And again, I'm speculating, um, yeah. but I I really sort of wonder if he's not necessarily idealizing them, but just again saying that they're somewhat a broad category. You know, it's like, hey, but, like look, we don't want to be like Saddam. We want to be more I- like <laughs> we want to be more like mlk you know what i mean it's well, like, I th- yeah
2: i think what why he's using these two obviously because they are um key figureheads for non-violence right but mm. it, 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 obama loved that quote that he co-opted by mlk so much about the moral arc of the universe mm-hmm. i actually read that he actually had it embroidered in the carpet did he get like in a- the oval office no wow. way I wonder if he has like yeah. a tattoo on his butt cheek yeah. or something. He probably does. <laughs> he's got a tramp. He got a tramp stamp of the <laughs> king's thing. But like, I think he 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 loves it so much. But this might be so. The the reality of the speech he's giving, the words he's saying, is one thing. But the sense and tension that he finds himself in, right, where he is trying to run on this, you know, black um history mm-hmm. uh, the, the love history right of the suffering of african-americans he comes from this tradition he doesn't want he's to he's sever calling... himself from that tradition no yeah. and then he's trying to link himself to that tradition through the the, his, the, the history of non-violence and mlk mm-hmm. and then what does he have to do is, is that we kind of started this program he has to send over thirty thousand more troops to afghanistan to create more violence so he I, I think he's trying to have this sort of i guess juxtaposition between himself
1: and the people he loves and he admires in this he's, speech like he's got to say something about his legacy which was always tied to mlk and yeah. just as mlk sat on the stairway to the lincoln memorial as he gave his speech obama has to do that to a certain degree to mlk here he ha- he has to MLK has to be in the background of the speech and he's got to deal with that. So I, I do think that some of it is out of necessity. Some of it's practical, like Zach is talking about. Yeah. Yep. Um, it's hard to get into to Obama's mind as to why he's doing this. I don't think, as Zach mentioned, he is more cynical than you might think. And that it. but as Aaron mentioned, this is a later Obama who's writing the memoirs. Yeah. But I will say that at the time and in his interview with David Brooks, when the topic of Niebuhr first came about, Uh, what obama said about neighbor was that this very nuanced view about evil in the world and and sometimes you you have to deal you have to confront that evil with more than just you know love or whatever
0: you know and i think actually one of the great interviews that i've watched that would really highlight the difference between obama and like a cynic and and I think that would capture a little bit of what we're talking about and trying to wrestle with here, is listening to Bill Maher interview Obama, I think it was right near the end of his presidency. Hmm. And, you know, Bill Maher, just full-on, you know, cynic, right? Just full-on, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there's almost this clash you can hear in their conversation, right? They don't clash that much. It's more just, you know, he has got Obama on the show, so he's pretty gentle. But it's almost like watching a man talk to like a teenager right obama <laughs> seems like seems like the man in the room right he that seems like hilarious. the adult and bill maher sounds almost like a teenager just because like his cynicism is almost a certain immaturity it's almost a sitting it almost makes it look childish right. and it's really strange because yeah. most of the time on bill maher's show he's he just tears people apart and he makes them look like children i love it. him him sitting next to obama and the kind of hope that obama represents and almost in his conversation he is still a cynic. Like, I, I don't think that Obama is as, as hopeful as some people make him out to be. But there's just something about that conversation. There's a tension between, like, between the two that's almost like a maturity, a growth. Somebody who's saying, you know what? I know, I know about the cynicism. I know about the skepticism. I know about all the things that we face, but I'm going to take a step forward. I'm going to take a step forward towards making the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And it's like, dang. Like, I don't know. Just watching those two together was just, there was something about it that I was like, man
1: that's a great point um, yeah but i think it, i think about how cynicism okay. can't be looked at as immaturity in the same way that i think a naive idealist sitting next to obama would look yeah as childish yeah and i am not like i don't want this to sound hagiographic and we're, we're like obsessed with obama on here because he is not without his criticism and, and flaws. Oh yeah, of course. And But I do admire in the ways that he fails, it's still a, a Niebuhrian way that he fails. And there's kind of a, uh, and I would say the same thing as like a James Comey, who we, we've yet to broach on the show, but who has a, a very um, open admiration for Reinhold Niebuhr. Um, and we know that James Comey um, has, has his flaws. Absolutely. But even with him, I love the way that he fails is a way a Nieburian would totally fail, um, kind of a paralysis by an analysis and and kind of you know running this thing to death, but also having the courage to do something crazy uh, when when time is needed. And uh, but it, but anyway, I I, I love. Um, I, I love that kind of discussion about those types of Niebuhrian failures that people might have, as opposed to the predictable failures that we could see from a mile away, like a Trump, like a Bill Maher, the, the very predictable ways that they might fail in their understanding of the world. Um, childish almost.
0: Yeah. Do you it's guys really,
1: think? Um, oh, go ahead, Zach. I'm sorry.
0: Well, I was just going to say it's, you know, it, one of the things I think we're bringing up here is just like, it is so easy to be a cynic and a critic, you know what I mean, comparatively, right? Yeah, but to be somebody right. who says, um, fully aware of those things that the cynic, that has the cynic in their place of cynic, cynicism, to then to say, and I think it's very neighbor to then say, yeah, but we're still gonna try to make this a better place. Yeah. We're still gonna step out there and, and do something that we, th- we think is pressing towards, um, uh, you know, I, I think a great example is like, he, he openly says in the speech that he disagrees with MLK, I mean, no, no, he doesn't, not that he disagrees, that he's a head of state, and so he can't abide right. by MLK, what MLK is striving for. Right. But he's still fully aware of the fact that he wants to be in a more nonviolent world. Um, he's his North Star,
2: as he yeah, says. right. So yeah. He's, he's yeah.
0: Not an <laughs> idol, his <as> North Star. <laughs> no, North,
2: my North Star. That's like a good holiday card. Yeah. Um, <laughs> if I could just, yeah, Cliff, oh, yeah, go ahead, Cliff, sorry.
1: No, you got it there.
2: I was going to ask, because, you know, this is the... This is the weird conclusion, right, to all of us. Not my comment. <laughs> but um, Obama is setting up the stage of we need to find new ways of peace. But then he, he talks about you, know, you know, uh, really digging into more human institutions. One institution he dug into was the U.S. drone program.
1: The U.S. drone program. Oh, interesting. Yes.
2: Yeah. And this is not, I mean, this is the, you know, maybe this would be a critique. I know Corner West has critiqued him on this quite heavily. But his, during his presidency, he used drones 10 times more than Bush did for a total of like 563 strikes in Pakistan and Somalia and Yemen. Can I say, though, b- that he yeah.
1: also, though, used less human beings to do the bombings? Do you mean in behind the control stick yes less uh soldiers were put in danger i guess by using more for, more drones and the technology was there for obama that wasn't there for bush
2: yeah 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 I,
1: it, I i'm not defending it but it's it's very complicated i mean that no i i
2: know it's complicated yeah but I, well i guess the point i'm trying to make is the nuanced perspective here that you know he is making decisions and they are having consequences Right. So, and this is probably to Anthony's question last week, right? There are certain things Christians in positions should not engage in or do. How can, if we're peacemakers, is Obama a peacemaker by virtue of the complicated decisions he has to make and engage in and the consequences of his decisions? I mean, this is the sort of you know retreat, I guess we could say, maybe retreating from having to make these decisions because they're so complicated for people who are in the non-violence or pacifist or you know, anti-war camps. But um, how do we how do as a Niebuhrian, do we speak um, of Obama and his decisions here? Because you know, neighbor commenting from his office in the philosophy department or theology department is making these great assessments of human nature but he never had to make these decisions before he never had to press a a button to you know kill people so how you know how would niebuhr think of obama um in terms of this
1: man what a great question how would how would reinhold niebuhr assess obama's legacy and his flaws um, I, you know, you, it's, you could almost predict it. Like, I think the Niebuhr on some issues would say that uh, Obama wasn't cur- uh, courageous enough. Um, on some mm-hmm. issues, Obama um, was overly exerted himself. Um, I think more probably the former Uh I, I so you, you kind of asked two questions. The one was is he a, is he a, is he a peacemaker? and uh i don't I don't know what Niebuhr would say to that question about whether or not he's a peacemaker. I, I think that the the Niebuhrian view is a view of peacemaking um, in a sinful world. Mm-hmm. How do we Relative, create... relatively speaking, right? Yeah, how do we create peace so, yeah. in a sinful world? So I think in, in that way, I would say that Obama uh, tried to be a peacemaker, whether or not his legacy will bear that out, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we, we, could, we could say that in the ways that he tried to create peace, there were blowback. I, I already mentioned um, leaving Iraq and creating the vacuum that ISIS would fill um, was, was one thing. A lot of things yeah. you can't predict. I mean, all you can ask for with leaders is that they understand the complexities of the issues at hand, try their best um, with the resources they have um, to create peace in the long run. You know, um, that's all. That's all you can ask. I mean, the same thing goes with Biden right now. I don't mm-hmm. think all that I ask them to do is what o- what Obama writes out here and and to maul these types of big issues. Um, as they uh, before they ordered that strike. Let me ask you guys. I mean, can Trump, could Trump ever write a speech like this? Yeah. Trump could write a <laughs> speech. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no, I um that was just me being a bit tacky and coy, but no, I I don't think so. And that's not that's not like a slight against Trump because I don't like him. I I just don't think he has the depth of spirit, yeah. Um, t- to really understand the complexity of decisions, and, and this might be a general assessment of authoritarian leaders, but it's really easy to be authoritative when all you have is one sort of conviction, right? Yeah. When you're just so like convinced this is the way to go. But you know, when you're when you are sitting upon and reflecting upon the decisions you have to make and your motivations behind doing them, it, it becomes a bit more, ha- a bit more hard to, to assess.
0: Yeah.
1: So I think the world is much s- simpler to a, a guy like Trump and yeah, hundred uh, percent. He he's kind of closer to a beast, an animal, a brute, like, and how you he know- understands, yeah. And how he understands he, he's, it's basically all about his, like, how will this make, how will people view me? You know, will this, how will my base like this?
0: Yeah, we don't uh, even know. We honestly don't even know Trump's psyche. I think part of, part of the deal. Yeah. I think that- We'll, we'll leave that I, for a whole other episode. Well, I, and I just think like- <laughs> Should oh, we read oh, the art of the deal? Yeah. <laughs> oh,
1: let's read the art of the deal. A neighboring no. analysis of the
0: art of the deal. <laughs> See, I, I don't think if you read the art of the deal that you would get, that's the difference I think between Obama and between Trump in a, in a lot of ways is you could probably read his memoir. And I think you actually get a lot of, you know, like, uh Obama talks about how like he was a bad dad kind of when he first when he was first uh getting into politics because he was just gone all the time. And he just tells you about wow, like and you over and over again he talks about how he's haunted, haunted by how his children's lives are slipping away and mm-hmm. how, how he's missing their, you know, that is a thoughtfulness and a reflectingness and a vulnerability Trump is not that of. you will not get from Trump, you know. And I think that's power, man. No. I think the ability <laughs> think to say sleeping yeah. his daughter
1: i think a much more interesting question would be like and we'll wrap up here in a second is what's the difference between obama and not bush uh, bush uh, 43 but the people he surrounded himself with so like rumsfeld and wolf wolfowitz who were niebuhrian like these these were neocons neoconservatives who were um all about Reinhold Niebuhr, um and uh, bill crystal and others so it, it's I would love to see a discussion or like maybe some side-by-side comparison between those types and John McCain, Hillary Clinton, they've all kind of spoken highly of American uh, irony of American history. And um, McCain devotes an entire chapter to Niebuhr and his book. Uh, It's interesting how you can end up in such very different spaces. But when you take a look at Trump, Trump is a very different beast from you from all of them collectively from Obama and Wolfowitz you know um he doesn't think uh as reflectively or as skeptically of of his own power um, as these other people do um but anyway that's that's for another episode I'm anxious to get into that that's probably a, a good place to stop thank you all so much for listening to the love thy neighbor podcast make sure you hit the like or subscribe button if you like what you're hearing and be sure to follow us on twitter at love thy neighbor for updates and posts on upcoming episodes and feel free to add us if you have any questions or comments about the show we'll try to devote a show one of these days to, to fielding some of your questions but until then take care everyone great